This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by Cigna. Cigna's 2018 Loneliness Index found that most Americans are lonely. However, those who have regular, meaningful, in-person interactions are less likely to be lonely. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. On Wednesday, June 13th, the Washington Post convened policymakers, healthcare experts, and advocates who discussed the state of mental health care in the United States, strategies for addressing the country's mental health concerns, and links between technology use and mental well being. In this segment, the First Lady of New York City, Sherlane McRae, discusses Thrive NYC, her initiative to create a model behavioral health system in America's most populous city with a focus on serving at-risk populations and combating the stigma associated with mental illness. Let's listen. Great, thank you. Good morning, I'm Libby Casey. I'm a politics and accountability video anchor here at the Washington Post, and I'm pleased to be joined on stage by the First Lady of New York, Shirlene McRae. And she's the creator, uh, among many things that you're doing, uh, she's the creator of Thrive NYC, which is an initiative aimed at creating a model behavioral health system in New York City. And Thrive has expanded to more than 200 cities across the country uh, through the city's Thrive Coalition of Mayors. Um, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Olivia. We want to talk about Thrive this morning and, and also how you help populations get care, especially at-risk populations, mm -hmm. and how to combat the stigma of mental illness. We'll, we'll be continuing a lot of the conversations that have been going on this morning. You can join the conversation yourself by writing into us on Twitter using the hashtag PostLive, and we can share those with the First Lady. So first of all, what was the inspiration for Thrive, and, and what are its goals? Well, mental health, mental illness, substance use disorders, these are issues that are very deeply personal uh, to me. Um, and my parents suffered from depression. Uh, our daughter came to us when she was 18 and said that she was suffering from anxiety and depression. So these are, you know, this is very personal. Um, I've seen so much in my life, um, so much that has gone wrong for people who have suffered from untreated mental illness and depression and uh, mental illness and addiction. And it's, it's something I felt like I had to do something. I had to because I saw how it was connected to um, people's inability to, to, go to work and take care of themselves, their inability to have healthy relationships or do well in school. I think that uh, too, too often we do not connect the dots of uh, where it comes when it comes to mental health, that if we don't deal with it, people cannot have healthy and productive lives. Hmm. You, you talk about your own personal story, and that's, um, that's how a lot of us outside of New York got to know you. I mean, we heard about your personal story. Um, does that help in, in combating stigma? I mean, what has the reaction been as you've shared your story and as you've heard feedback from people, both in a very personal one-to-one -one level as well as a larger level? Oh, it's been amazing. Every time I tell my story, uh, people come up to me and, and, and tell their stories. They feel much more comfortable sharing what has happened to them, what has happened to their families. And I think that's the best thing that anyone can actually do to combat stigma is to tell their own personal mental health story. And we saw two very high-profile New Yorkers, loved by many, not just in New York, but around the country, 
uh, killed themselves last week. Yes. Kate Spade and Anthony Bourdain. Yes. Mm -hmm. how, how does that enter this conversation right now? Well, it, obviously it's been a very painful and tragic week for, for so many people. Um, these situations triggered memories for people who have had uh, suicides in their own families. And I think Your that, family had a suicide in it, your husband's yes, family. That's right, that's right, and my family as well. I th we don't talk about this enough. Um, and the reality is, is that we can prevent so much of, of, of this death by suicide. You know, it, sadly, these deaths have reminded us that, that um, people can appear to have it all, right? wealth, um, happy families, and, but still there's this invisible disease um, going on inside that, that needs treatment. So this has been a reminder to all of us that we have to reach out to our friends, our family, our, our, our co-workers, and, and ask, them, ask them, how are you doing? You know, not superficially, but really, how are you doing? And, and pay attention to, to how they are connecting with other people and if they have had depression in the past, to know that they, people can relapse. That is not uncommon for people to have a relapse. So, Ms. McCray, if, if you're living in New York City and, and you're having um, a, a personal crisis or you feel like you need help, what is the ideal set of steps that would happen? I mean, mm -hmm. you know, you've tried to get people to know they can truly pick up the phone, mm -hmm. but, but what is there available in the short term and what do you want to grow? Well, in New York City, we believe that there should be no wrong door, that people should have a variety of places to turn. And that is why uh, working in partnership with our communities is, is so important. We do have a 24-7 helpline called NYC Well that anyone can call at any time of day or night and talk to a trained counselor or a peer counselor, someone who has lived experience with addiction. Um, and we are pushing that word out, you know, advertising, like making as many people know about it as possible. So that is, that is one, one thing that people can do. But, you know, family, we want family members to be the first first responders. Uh, family members are, are often the first ones to notice, well, my, my son or my daughter, they're not, they're not acting the same way. They're isolating themselves or they're agitated. They, they, they are... Um, using more drugs or alcohol than, than before. And this is, this is um, something that a parent or a friend, anyone can call this number and say, look, I've got a friend. I don't know what to do. Um, and the trained counselor will help walk them through the steps of what they can do, depending on the situation. And then what should happen next in terms of what the city's responsible for versus the state versus the federal government? Um, <laughs> because there, you make the call, mm -hmm. you might be taken out of that immediate crisis, mm -hmm. but then there's the next day. Yeah, well, the, the wonderful thing about this call is that uh, people can actually get connected to care just by making this free phone call, this free and confidential phone call. They can actually make an appointment with a therapist or a psychologist or a psychiatrist. It depends on what is appropriate. And then if the caller wants, get a, the, the consul will call back and see if it worked, if it was all right. Um, if need be, the consular can send a mobile crisis team to the home and evaluate this, this situation. So there's no one answer. Um, there are, are many ways to connect to care. We are, we're employing our faith communities. We're training them and uh, our faith leaders and mental health first aid and, 
and psychoeducation, motivational interview, whatever is, you know, whatever they, they want, whatever they need, because we know that people often go to their faith leader. Um, they turn to them if they need help because they trust them. We know that people um, have trusted relationships with uh, leaders in their communities, right? So we have a program called Connections to Care, where we train staff at community organizations um, and partner these organizations with a mental health partner uh, for higher level care. And so when people walk through the door to get employment training or daycare or some other type of service, um, they are, can actually be screened. Uh, so we know that if they need, they need other kinds of care, they can be connected to it. And you know, we have 15 organizations. Uh, again, it's called Connections to Care. 15 organizations are in this program. And we have found that one out of every three people who walks through the doors actually needs some type of uh, mental health care. Now that's pretty amazing, that's like 30%. And we have found that the outcomes for these programs, so the, the community programs, are much better in addition to the individuals obviously getting the help they need. And this is saving lives. This is saving a lot of lives. We've served more than 16,000 people this way. I want to get back to this question of sort of city versus state versus federal. But yes. The first thing you brought up something so important, which is just being able to find someone who is a trained therapist, counselor, psychiatrist, if that's needed. Mm -hmm. And you know, one of my colleagues sort of bravely tweeted out last week. She's an African American young woman here in this city about how hard it is to find care. Yes. And then if you can find a therapist that you feel like relates to you, and I'll point out here that the American Psychological Association reports that only 5% of the country's psychologists identify as black. That's right. If you can find a therapist that relates to you, your insurance may not cover it. That's right. If you have insurance. <laughs> so how do you deal with this need for care so people can have that long-term, ongoing, developed relationship with someone who's trained and knows how to help them through what they're dealing with? Well, in New York City, uh, we have this helpline 1-888-NYC-WELL, and anyone who calls that number is, is provided with some kind of appropriate care that is convenient for them. We don't turn anyone away. It doesn't matter whether they have insurance or not. We know how important this is. It has to be a priority. And you asked about the federal, the state, the cities. We all have to make this a priority. We have to find ways that people can connect to care. If we don't, it, has, it can have lifelong consequences. Um, it, it can result in um, someone's death um, or the devastation of a family. We have to find ways to connect people to care. And when it comes to populations like the African-American population, the LGBTQ population, Latinos, so many, we do not have the culturally competent care that we need. Uh, we just don't. Uh, that statistic, 5% of the uh, mental health professionals in our country are African-American. Just imagine what it is for other ethnic groups. So we have to, we need to create a pipeline of, of care. We need to get more uh, African Americans and other ethnicities involved in the mental health workforce. But we also have to employ task shifting. We have to train people who are already doing this work, like our clergy, like um, community, uh, community organization leaders. We have to train them to do some of this work as well. So whose responsibility is it to tie it all together, right? Mm -hmm. To bring all those communities together? And, and mm -hmm. why do you 
hope that it works at the citywide level? Well, you know, the problem is, is we've never had a coordinated behavioral health system in our country, ever. I mean, I just find that astounding. This is 2018, and we have so many issues that relate directly back to the fact that we don't have this system, and, and no one has really taken responsibility. There are many good services, and many of our elected officials are doing amazing things, but there is no um, yeah, national will to get this done. Um, I think that everyone has to do their part. Uh, and as individuals, people can volunteer, they can, they, they can pressure their candidates, for who, people who are running for office to make this a priority. We, we all have to do that, otherwise it will not happen. And we have this coalition called Cities Thrive um, where we're talking every month uh, to mayors all around the country and sharing best practices, like sharing what we're doing in New York with Thrive NYC. Um, and best practices in other places, like whether it's New Hampshire or Kentucky or Seattle, sharing uh, really innovative solutions to what is really a mental health crisis. Can you share with us any, anything you've learned from some of those other communities that maybe surprised you or inspired you or you realized was a good takeaway that you could then apply to New York? I, one of my favorites is um, in New Hampshire, they are actually using their, their firehouses um, for in, in response to the opioid epidemic. Uh, anyone, a, a loved one, a friend, can bring uh, anyone who has uh, survived an overdose or someone who is uh, addicted to a fire station and they get connected within 11 minutes to a uh, opioid uh, program, opioid uh, treatment program, recovery program. I, I, just, I love the way um, these communities are using their assets, you know, pre-existing uh, structures and, and services to, in, a, in a new and uh, innovative way. It's, um, it, everyone thinks of the, the firehouse as a safe place. You know, firefighters are seen as lifesavers. And I thought this was a really good idea to use the, the fire stations as a place that anyone could go any time of day or night and get this kind of care. So what do you want to see happen at the statewide level and at the federal level? Mm -hmm. I mean, do you well, feel like New York can be sort of a, a cauldron, a place to create a model program? But then you know, how do you expand that out? Yeah, I, I think our cities can model solutions. Uh, that's what we're doing in New York, and it has been picked up um, by, by other cities. And, and, and even in London, you know, Mayor Sadiq Khan has a, a London Thrive program inspired by what we're doing. I think that it has to be the the priority, the, the elected officials, the candidates have to, have to have mental health in their platforms. It is the ultimate intersectional issue. Um, you deal with uh, mental health and, and substance use disorders and you deal with a host of other issues like domestic violence, like gun violence, like um, the, our schools, why so many children aren't performing as well as they should. Uh, it has to be part of, of everyone's platform if they want to run for office. Uh, again, this is a crisis. <laughs> so we have to do something on, on the higher levels uh, if we're going to get it uh, solved. In working with um, some of the communities of New York, you've created Sisters Thrive. That's right. You've created other programs mm -hmm. or sort of subsets of, this, of the bigger Thrive mm -hmm. network. Tell us about how the, the programs are different and, and mm -hmm. why you're, you're really targeting 
certain communities? Well, we're targeting specific communities because, as I say to uh, everyone, there is no one solution. And because stigma, the stigma is so great, um, it, it is helpful to have people reach those people who are closest to them in their own communities. So we launched Sisters Thrive, which is um, a, a collaboration between government and the traditional service-led organizations, the sororities, um, uh, like the Alphas and the Deltas and the Sigma Gamma Rose, and, and we're training them in mental health first aid. Mental health first aid is an eight-hour program. It is amazing. Um, none of us grows up understanding mental illness and substance use disorders. We don't, we don't get that kind of uh, education growing up. We all know what to do when someone's bleeding, but we don't know what to do if someone has a panic attack or if someone's suffering from depression. Mental health first aid actually teaches people the, the skills that to recognize, uh, to identify uh, the, the signs and symptoms of mental illness, but also how to respond appropriately. So working with uh, these, these sister organizations, we're working with the brothers as well, which is so important because men often have a harder time uh, dealing with, with, with these issues. So those brothers thrive this, as well. This is, yes, and, and working with our clergy, they help us, they help as government to penetrate communities where it's, it's harder for us to reach. Um, you know, we're not uh, always as trusted as someone who actually lives in the community and, and works with them uh, every day. When you hear from people, why are they afraid to pick up the phone and either call mm -hmm. the helpline that New York has established or what's the fear about having a mental health team come to your house and, and stage an intervention? I mean, what are you hearing um, that, that gives people pause, not just because perhaps of their depression or they, they can't quite mm -hmm. get to that place, but, but what's some of the holdback? Well, stigma, we cannot underestimate the power of stigma. First of all, most people just, they don't want to see themselves as that, that, way, that way, as someone who um, is, is broken or someone who is imperfect. Uh, you know the, 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 the stereotypes. Um, you know, people just don't have enough discipline or willpower. They're crazy. No one wants to be called crazy. No one. Uh, and so that can prevent somebody from picking up the phone. Uh, they may feel like, oh, I'll, I'll get better. Uh, or they may be in denial that, that there's nothing wrong, nothing wrong at all. Uh, I think that we can't rely on people to pick up the phone when they need it all the time. Sometimes many people do. I mean, we get hundreds and hundreds of calls uh, every day uh, to our NYC Well Helpline. Uh, sometimes as many as a thousand calls a day. Our police respond to uh, more than 400 mental health crises every day. Uh, those are astounding numbers. We have to we have to educate our families and our communities about mental illness and substance use disorders so that they can, can help people um, the, in, in a way that that phone number may not always be able to because families see uh, what the counselors who are sitting you know, answering that helpline don't. Uh, we wouldn't ask someone with a broken leg to run to the hospital, <laughs> right? <laughs> we should not expect someone who is in the throes of depression or someone who's, who's suffering from any other mental illness to always be able to pick up the phone and call. We just shouldn't. They're, they don't feel well. They're in a very vulnerable state. We should not expect them to be able to pick up the phone. We, we have to 
Um, we, again, we can all be first responders. We just have to learn how to be more observant, more, some more sensitive, and, and, and take mental health first aid. I, I took it, and it's an amazing course. Anyone can go online and, and uh, look it up, mentalhealthfirstaid.org. Uh, I strongly advise anyone who's listening to take that course. It transformed my life. Really? That's right. How so? Uh, well, it just because they, they, they really teach you about all the different mental illnesses and, and how to sort of be, put yourself in their shoes, um, understand what it feels like as much as anyone can, and, and how to react appropriately. I, I can't emphasize that enough. How to choose your words. Um, just when someone's having a panic attack, you don't say, calm down. <laughs> it's not the right thing to say when someone is in a panic attack. So um, I, I advise everyone to take it because I think it's very helpful in dealing with stigma and helping people to feel comfortable around people who are suffering from a mental illness or substance use disorders. And it goes a long way to helping, um, helping others. Let me remind you, you can join this conversation by tweeting us with the hashtag PostLive. This is your opportunity to ask the First Lady of New York, Sherlane McRae, a question about uh, Thrive uh, or about anything else. Maybe we'll talk politics in a, in a few minutes. Can't, can't avoid it because you're in Washington. But I, I want to stay on this issue of, of what New York is doing and what your office is trying to do. Um, how are you talking with police and law enforcement? Mm -hmm. and first responders about dealing with people who might be having um, a mental health episode or might be you know, on drugs, in, in, which has, they're doing to self-medicate mm -hmm. because of a mental health issue. Right. Oh, it is so challenging for our police officers, for anyone who's a first responder. And what we're doing with um, our, our police forces, uh, we're training them in crisis intervention training. We're teaching them to de-escalate um, situations that are, you know, where, where um, things may be getting out of hand. We're teaching them with by using different scenarios. We actually have actors. We we sort of have a like setup uh, where they go through different scenarios. We, we we have them talking with people who have schizophrenia, who have bipolar disorder, who have actually had interactions with the police because we want them to have first-hand experience with these situations so that when they actually get into a situation like that they, they know what to do. It, it's tough though. It's very tough because everyone is different. People are different. They act out differently. Um, but it is, it is so important that they have this training. Um, many uh, officers, uh, many police forces all around the country are doing this. Our training is, is four days long, it is intense, uh, and we think that it, it does so much to help them in, in these very unpredictable situations. Uh, we've had more than 8,000 of our officers trained, patrol officers, and, and we are going to do as much as possible. Any recruit who comes in gets trained, and we are expanding this as, as fast as possible. <laughs> the money that it takes to launch a program like this, and mm -hmm. you, of course, are working on partnerships with existing organizations, as you mentioned, faith-based groups, mm -hmm. um, sororities and fraternities. Uh, how big should the budget for this be, and where should the funding come from? Mm -hmm. Well, I believe that a percentage of any government's budget should be devoted to behavioral health services. Uh, I know that uh, we're a long way from that, uh, but that's what I believe. 
with the city, New York City has put uh, nearly a billion dollars into these programs, but so much of what we're doing, or much of what we are doing, is actually voluntary because there's a great hunger, there's a great need for these type of services. You know, every week, every year, in the last three years, we have held a weekend of faith on mental health. So we have, we've worked with clergy members all around the city and around the country to devote, um, get them to devote part of their service to talking about mental health uh, or, or addiction, right? We, we are getting them to tell their personal stories where, uh, if they have a personal story to share. And we're get, helping them to help their congregations feel more comfortable talking about these illnesses and, 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 what's, and giving them a way to direct them to resources. So that's something any city can participate in. We, we've had uh, 2,000 cities, 2,500 city, uh, I'm sorry, 2,500 houses of worship participated in May this year. Uh, and all 50 states had at least one house of worship participate in our weekend. And we want to do more. These are things that don't really cost uh, any money. Um, that, that anyone can launch. It's, it's a little labor and, of course, communications, but, but we want everyone to be involved in, in any way that they can. Um, this is a crisis, which means that we need all hands on deck. I want to talk about children mm -hmm. um, and the questions that have been and concerns that have been swirling around, not only uh, suicide by teenagers, yes. but violence in the schools. Mm -hmm. um, how are you looking at um, working with kids and working with their families? Everything from preventing the next school shooting mm -hmm. on the mental health level mm -hmm. to talking to children about the fear they may have about going to school every day. Mm -hmm. Well, we're big proponents of social emotional learning. We think that one has to look at the whole child and not just you know, the reading, writing, and arithmetic. Um, that our children walk through the classroom, into the doors of the school, into the classroom with, with, with so many emotional burdens, um, whether it's uh, trauma from domestic violence or drugs being used in the home. Um, we, we don't even know um, what our children are walking through the door with. So we really have to look at the whole child. Uh, in New York, we are training our teachers in social-emotional learning so that they can help children identify their emotions, which so many children can't do. They don't, can't even say what they're feeling. Um, identify the emotions, know what, how, what to do. What do you do when you're feeling sad? What do you do if you're feeling angry? What is a constructive channel to, to focus that energy um, to? Uh, and we think this is a first step in, in getting our children the kind of, of support they need. We now have some kind of mental health support in, in all 1,800 of our schools, um, but that support, of course, varies. Some schools have clinics, some schools have um, counselors uh, who are available in organizations outside the school. Uh, so, and we, we want to build on this. This is kind of laying the foundation for what I think should be a, a truly holistic approach. and and. Uh, the way we are raising our children and, and helping them learn. Uh, when you have these type of services, uh, the school climate tends to be much better, uh, and, and children, um, they, they, it's easier for them to learn. And, and we have to make sure that they don't have access to um, 
to ways uh, that where they to things that they, they can harm themselves with. And New York City's uh, suicide rate is less than half the national rate. And I believe one of the reasons for that is that we don't we that we do have a strong gun control. Um, you know, the number one weapon of choice for most suicides is is a gun. Uh, and we have to, uh, we real, two thirds of all suicides um, are, you know, firearms were used. And we aren't making those connections. And we're, we're very focused on, on the mass shootings, which is important because uh, we, we certainly don't want those to reoccur. But we have to realize that the more people take their own lives using guns than, than um, you know, than perpetuate mass shootings. Ms. McRae, a question that's coming in uh, on social media. Are you meeting with any lawmakers on these issues while you're here in Washington? Mm -hmm. Yes, I'll be meeting with um, some of our senators and representatives. Um, this is something. Both sides of the aisle? Both sides of the aisle. Cities Thrive, our coalition of mayors, is a bipartisan coalition. And, you know, I say to everyone this is a family issue, this is a community issue. We all have so much to lose or so much to gain by, by dealing with this appropriately. We all, we, we all have to do our part. What would you like to see legislators do on the national level? On the national level, I would like, uh, well, we're all pushing for more integrated care. We're pushing for uh, better funded um, mental health care system. Uh, well, that we don't have <laughs> more funding in, in mental health. We're, we have legislation that, that, that needs to um, go more directly, or the funding needs to go more directly to the cities and the counties. Uh, you know, sometimes when it goes to the state, the cities don't don't see as much of that funding as is, is needed. So those are some of the things that we'll be talking about this uh, these next couple of days. You're obviously passionate about these issues and proposing mm -hmm. solutions. You've taken not only a very visible role but an active role uh, with this effort. Mm -hmm. So one way to affect change is to run for office yourself. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you have said you, you could see yourself running in the future, perhaps in 2021 would be the soonest. That would be the soonest. Uh, what, where do you see uh, an avenue where you could be effective? Is it at the local level? Is it at the state or national level? I, I only said that I would think about running um, <laughs> because, as you know, the, the political landscape can change very quickly. Like, who knows what's going to happen um, during the midterms and who knows what will happen in 2020? We'll, we'll see. But uh, I will certainly be very focused on, on mental health and, and how I can have the greatest impact. That is, um, some, this is something I want to continue working on. The need is great, and I'll be looking for how I can do that. With your husband as the mayor, it's given mm -hmm. you the opportunity as a team to really dig into this and mm -hmm. have the platform to create Thrive mm -hmm. and to get it not only in New York City, but cities across this nation, and That's apparently right. in London as well. That's right. So do you, mm -hmm. where do you see the power in serving in office um, uh, as being appealing to you? Is it at the local level? Is it, is it at the statewide level? I mean, do you see a road that looks like you say, you know, that is a way where we can, where, where a lot of the, the sausage is made, and so mm -hmm. policy can really be created and then enacted mm -hmm. and can in, impact the people I live with on the block? Look, I'm First Lady. Um, I, um, I've kind of created um, my, my um, path, and I'm having a tremendous impact. Um, I think that people can have a tremendous impact in whatever role they choose. Uh, and I, I don't know where this path is going to lead me. 
where I, I will look at the landscape and figure out you know where that might be but wherever I am I'm going to be doing this work and I will be looking for the place where I can do the most. What's it been like having a strong role as uh, the first lady as the spouse of the mayor mm -hmm. um, because you know there was a um, a tweet that came out from one of the the staffers that sort of pushed back at someone saying that you were visible for policy announcements the staffer said she's involved in the policy right she's helping to direct and create the policy <laughs> oh, and yes. your name is on press releases from the mayor's office mm -hmm. announcing personnel decisions um, so you know how has it been to chart that path in a role that has not traditionally had such an, a visibly active role? Mm -hmm. Well, I don't think that what I'm doing is very different from what I've done over the decades um, leading up to uh, being First Lady. I'm, I'm, I'm following my heart. I'm working on, on issues that I care about passionately. Uh, I like to be in the weeds. I like to read everything. Um, my, my team knows that. And I'm just doing what I think is is best for, for, for our families. That is, um, that's my first priority. And I, I do what I can to help other people understand the urgency and, and what I'm doing and what we're doing in New York City. Final thoughts, where do you go from here with this initiative? Where do we go? Well, Thrive NYC is not that old. Uh, we launched two years ago. Not all of our programs launched two years ago, so we have a lot of building to do. We have to uh, expand our services. We have to deepen our services, get them embedded in all of our agencies, because we know that, um, I know that we only have three and a half years left uh, in this, this term, in this administration. I want to make sure that it goes on, that all of these programs continue after we're gone. So that's what I'll be very focused on for the next uh, few years and making sure that everyone has understanding of why we're doing this, why the outcomes for, for everyone are better with these programs and uh, so that, that they can continue after we're gone. We'll be watching for your visits here to Washington. Uh, thank you so much to the First Lady of New York, Shirlane McRae. Thank you for joining us. And thanks to all of you for coming. That's all we have time today uh, for this event. If you want to watch any of these interviews online afterwards, go to our website, WashingtonPostLive.com. I'm Libby Casey. Thank you so much for being a part of this. Thank you. Thank you, Libby. <laughs>